0: Welcome to a Meathead Hippie podcast. I'm your host, Emily Schramm, and I am thrilled to present to you a mini lesson in sociology. I feel so enlightened. I have just such an incredible guest, Stephanie Malin, who is an environmental sociologist. She specializes in extraction and energy, energy production and how that ties into community and the impacts. And it's like, It's just a really good conversation. I'm really excited to bring this to you. And when we think about the grief of the world and how it's changing and then also our role in it, which is this title of this podcast, right? I just want to bring to you so many nuggets of hope and inspiration. We're about to move into Pluto and Aquarius And astrologically, I think we forget. You know, if you're not into astrology, please start getting into astrology. If you're not into human design, book an office hours with me immediately or work with me one on one. There's so much to be discovered about the timing of everything. Our own awakening, which was my last podcast, really about uh, taking this agitation and transforming it into activation and awakening. And it's all in perfect timing, but we have to be open. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared. We have to be showcasing who we are and also showcasing to the universe. Like, Hey, I'm showing up for you just like you're going to show up for me. And one of this little nuggets that came through on my 15 minutes of Instagram today, I shared it on Facebook actually was the earth actual, I don't know where it was, but in the middle of a field, where it seemingly seemed like nothing, clear quartz crystals popping out of the earth, right? So that, and when we think about crystals, if you're into crystals, clear quartz is about cleansing our chakras, protecting against negative energies, connecting with higher levels of consciousness. So, whether it's just for us as the human race or for all of us, whether that is the trees, the birds, the water. The support is like so there, and it's up to us to just learn, be receptive, and to take these opinions that we have, regardless of what your opinion may be, to relax them a little bit, to be malleable, and just be receptive to the the learning that is available and, and understanding what our role is. It's never individual. It's always collective, and Stephanie Mallon is doing such amazing work with this, so she is the associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Colorado State University. She has written a book, so a couple books, but the one that I would highly recommend that just launched is Building Something Better, Environmental Crisis and the Promise of Community Change with Megan Elizabeth Coleman. And it's just a very approachable way for us to rethink community and understand it's we, not I, and there's so much that is ready for change and it's up, uh, up to us to really, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. It just feels so activating. It's like the agitation to activation. Again, my last podcast, how do we transform anything that feels like I'm so overwhelmed I'm closing off or I'm so activated that I'm burning myself out. And this is really some of the more practical, behind the scenes, environmental support. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, you can find Stephanie in multiple places, but I'm going to send you to her Instagram, Stephanie underscore Malin, And then you can also learn about her at the environmentaljustice.colostate.edu. So this is the Center for Environmental Justice and um, a lot of what her work is. So. So excited, Stephanie, for being on the show. The fun side note is that her husband was my former soccer coach when I was like 14. And I was just so, it was the craziness of the synergy of how we reconnected. So hi, Matt. Hi, Xander. You were my favorite soccer coaches ever. (laughs) Sending you all so much love. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Last but not least, if you have not gotten on a magnesium, please Try Mag. This is an incredible magnesium that crosses the blood-brain barrier, magnesium l three 8 It will improve your sleep, improve improve your stress. I have had the most amazing testimonials come through in the last couple weeks. My cousin who has had chronic foot pain after a week of taking magnesium, it has eased up. The sleep numbers on your WHOOP or any sort of sleep tracking device, just test it. If it does not improve your sleep numbers, I will refund you. That is how powerful this magnesium is. We know we're trying to get more magnesium in the earth by helping heal the land through regenerative soil practices and less extraction and all of the beautiful work that's happening. But we also need to understand our body is a mirror and we need to supplement magnesium. 95% of us are deficient in it. So use the code Meathead Hippie Go to MyEmpirica.com. I'm launching a little survival bundle if you're on the My Empirica list that is really packed with all my favorite things and it includes the magnesium. But long story short, it will change your life. <laughs> and I would love to get this in your hands for you to try the TriMag And when you're done with the containers, you can ship them back to us. We're going to fill them up with herbs and it's going to be beautiful. So big love. Enjoy the show. And I cannot wait to hear what you think. Thank you again, Stephanie. And I'll see you guys soon. (laughs) I'm Emily Shram, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. Stephanie Malin, welcome to Meathead Hippie. I am so happy to have your expertise and your passion and your heart on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm glad to have you. So this is fun because you are like my biggest champion when I talk about anything environmental or uh, anything that has to do with the affairs of the world. There's (laughs) just so much support from... work that you're doing and who you are. And you sent me a little preview of your your book and I just am blown away. I felt like I got a mini degree in sociology when I was reading it. (laughs) That was
1: our intention.
0: (laughs) That was really good. It was really well-rounded and also kind of just to the name of this podcast and also the name of the work that you do and the workshops you run, Climate Grief to Active Hope. Mm -hmm. You know, this is really, I think, so resonant with everyone where we are writing this line where we want to be engaged, but we're also like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. I just feel paralyzed in what to do. And it's a huge thing that like all of us are collectively going through when we realize everything we thought was solid and a foundation that was built for the better of all is just so clearly not the case. And so, um, yeah, I'm just really excited to dig into these topics and and really open up the conversation about how we can be participants in environmental justice and how we can help feel not so hopeless and also how we can understand these very complex problems uh, mm-hmm. that sometimes just go straight over our head and and it's easier almost to like shut down and kind of not be so a right. participant
1: in, right? So mm-hmm. thank you so much for being yeah. a part of this. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to to share some sociology because for most of your listeners, this may seem like what what is this? Why are we talking about this? But I think by the end, it'll be, it'll see, you know, folks will see how relevant it is to all the work that you do and, and what folks um, are interested in for sure. Yeah.
0: And it was so for you personally, kind of, I think that's always so fun to hear about someone's own original story of how you became a sociologist and how Mm -hmm. you are now a teacher (laughs) of this. How did this begin or where was the root of that for you? Where did that, Yeah. yeah, where did that spark?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I had no idea what sociology was. I think I was until I was in like later in high school. Um, I'll preface this by saying I was a pretty um, different kid now that I look back on things. And when I was about 12 or 13, I went through this like huge, just set of you know, like trying to figure out, I think now looking back who I was and like what resonated with me and, and all that sort of stuff. And I um, became a vegan at 13. I'm no longer a vegan once I learned more about <laughs> nutrition, but from 13 to 21, right. I was this very um, engaged animal rights kind of activist and, and was thinking I, I was reading animal liberation as a seventh grader, like look, this, this like animal rights philosophy book from like the seventies. Right? Are you, are you, know.
0: Stephanie, are you an Aquarius? What so what's your sign?
1: Oh, that's funny. So I am I'm a Scorpio, um, but I have my moon is an Aquarius and okay. my moon is in my 10th house, right? So like my my like public persona and also like what I've been driven towards in my career is very guided by those sorts mm-hmm. of those sorts of like mm-hmm. humanitarian big picture, like systems change kind of ideals. That's really where my heart is, right? And that's what yeah. that's what kind of lights me up. Um and then I'm a Taurus rising. So I've got some good balance and then also like a lot of Libra in my chart as well. Oh, um, thank but God I, for the Libras. Jeez, I know. What would we do without yeah. you? <laughs> it makes me a much friendlier Scorpio, that's for sure. That's
0: so <laughs> I am weird. not
1: I am not as temperamental or or whatever as 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 one might think. I, and for human design, I'm learning that, so I don't know as much about. I used to do like natal charts and stuff in high, in high school, so I'm super into astrology and know know more about that than human design which I'm still very much a beginning student of but I'm a manifester and so it's very and like a 6-2 manifester and it's oh, very shit. interesting to me how like I read once I was like I had a little chart done right and I was reading through that and my big I don't know if it's, it's my strategy or whatever. I I, see, I'm going to butcher this now is to um, inform. And I was just like, Oh yes, this is okay. So at least I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Wow. I'm
0: obsessed with this to have a sociologist, (laughs) environmental justice activist, be a manifester. This is where we can like we're doing some damage, Stephanie. This is so good
1: shit. Oh, cool. This is cool. Yeah. So my, (laughs) my little Aquarius moon when I was like 13, right. was like, what is going on with this world? And I just, it wasn't until I got to high school and was able to take some, a college credit class, right. In sociology, I have, you know, when you like have those moments in life where you can like picture what you were do- like you you can go right back to that moment and I just oh, really? I was in like the the first week of sociology class and we were going through like the intro chapter and I was like I had that moment where I was like oh my goodness I think this is the way I think and it, it's because it's sociology is all about systems right and institutions and our social structures and I especially study uh political economy right so our economic systems and how the way we fetishize those in a lot of ways can like structure the rest of society, right? And we think about capitalism now for like the last 500 years, right? It really structures the way we interact with ourselves, with each other, with what we call the environment, right? And has really driven this rift between ourselves, industrial capitalism, right? between ourselves and the the world around us, right? We don't even think of ourselves as part of nature. Um, and so, so that really just caught me up, and and I majored in sociology and anthropology at Truman State, and I I also love writing, and so I majored in English, I majored in creative writing at the same time, and did a little bit of, uh, got a minor in philosophy and religion, so tried to learn a lot about um, Eastern religions, and so all of this just kind of coalesced um, into this interest in systems and how we might love one another more. And through that, those studies, I really learned about um, different tribal nations and Native nations and what we call North America, right? And, and some of, and just realizing like, oh, we're not trying to get towards anything. We're just trying to relearn these knowledge systems that have been around for millennia that that Western industrial culture tried to kind of exterminate, right? Um, right. And still is is trying to in, in so many ways. And so doing what I can to just um, be an ally in, in all of that, right? So that's kind of how I got involved in sociology. And, and again, it's the study of institutions and systems and structures, but I study, um, it's multiple scales, right? So I do a lot of work in community where people have, are dealing with like oil and gas production, especially like fracking, right? And the, that kind of um, production or uranium mining and milling. I've done a lot of work there. But like my book focuses on the most recent book, Building Something Better focuses on um, Megan Coleman. And I wrote that together and she's a state Senator in Rhode Island, as well as a sociologist, right? So we were just, we kind of hit walls with our students where we would teach these things like environmental justice and social inequality. And we just, felt like it was so um, so important, but of course, right? To teach these perspectives, but every single class I will teach, my students will hit a wall about halfway through, right? Where they're just, like you said before, even if they kind of knew this stuff before, or what have you, they're just paralyzed by the enormity or the seeming enormity of the problems that we face, right? And it felt irresponsible after a while to keep presenting the problems without having, and I would focus on solutions, but I wanted something like this book to be like, look at all the amazing things that are already going on and have been going on and will continue to go on, right? Because it it's almost easy to be negative and focus on the things that are so um, depressing, and 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 there's so many of them that we could focus on, but but really, it's my responsibility as an educator, I think, to show people all of the hope that they can have. And we're all going to swing back and forth between feeling, you know, paralyzed and depressed and feeling hopeful. But the more I can give people, the more fuel I can give them to like swing back to the hopeful and engage the more, i feel like I'm actually fulfilling what I'm supposed to do. Right. So oh. sorry, that was a long-winded answer, no, but <laughs> it's not, that's
0: great. And well, I just wanted to say, cause even when we were prep talking, it was like, just, you know, these people, and I think all of us can relate to this. It's like, okay, I am an individual that matters because without individual, there is no community. I'm mm-hmm. in- engaged. So your students, you said your students come in so excited and so ready. And then, like you said, that point where it's just like, oh my God, wait, what, how can I engage? And, and what does this look like? And how do I stay hopeful in this mess of a situation? And what, what would you say is kind of maybe the, a common theme of what brings people back to like, nope, no, no, stay engaged. Like we, we got this. And of course your examples of um, building something better in your book were so helpful of like how these community building things are impactful. And just in general, that there's a purpose to everything we're doing, but I guess, yeah. What are the things that you feel like can bring people back to that excitement and impact? Cause if we don't, you know, we don't see an impact, we don't have any desire to continue. It's just like a workout routine or a nutrition routine, right? right. It's like very discouraging in so many ways.
1: Sorry. I'm going to shut my door. So my dog is it? So, okay. um, yeah. So I think the thing that keeps it's different for different folks, right? I have noticed so much in the last like four or five years, the undergrad, I teach mostly college undergrads, right? And there's been this like real sea change in terms of some not so awesome things like being over reliant on technology in a different way. But the positive side of things has also been that folks are very aware of economic systems and inequality, like they yeah. they will name capitalism and be like, this is the root problem in a way that my yeah. students five years and earlier would, would not have done, right? They would not have. And it would have been this whole learning process of trying to teach what we live within, see it, and then how to dismantle it. And I, so I think the hope comes from already having kind yeah. of identified the root problem and being so motivated then to do what they can yeah. to dismantle it, right? And it's just both for their own well-being, right? They're trying to figure out, like, where do I fit in this world and what do I want to do and how do I want to contribute? And for a lot of students, it's not so much about, like, being able to make enough money anymore, things like that, right? Or commodifying themselves in that way. And I think what keeps them motivated is just feeling like they want to be part of, of that solution. And if you give them something um, that, they can gra- that they can grasp onto, right, that, that really, like... We'll let them climb out of whatever like rabbit hole they may go down. Right. That I think is the thing that keeps them coming back. So I have these different ways of trying to have students identify and I use um, Ayanna Johnson has this really cool climate Venn diagram that she oh. uses where um, you think about what brings you joy. What what are you good at? right? And then what needs doing or what do we need to right. do in the world? And the middle part there where the Venn diagram kind of meets, right, is, is what your environmental justice action or your climate action can be. And I think it's as simple as, um, it's not simple, but it's it, it really kind of is, right? Just have people understand how they can scale up what they're really good at and what makes them happy as an individual into the collective, right? How do I contribute to these bigger systems, um, even if it's like just my com- my community, right? my neighborhood, whatever is a little larger than you that's working towards something and and really identifying something concrete. And it can be like all kinds of things right like my students will talk about how they love to make people laugh and so they want to figure out how to do that or they're really good at they're excellent artists right and so they want to help visualize what what's going on and ways that you can plug in that you may not have thought about in that way before i think that brings a lot of hope as well as the reason why we focused on these concrete cases in the book right is because it's really easy to critique what we're embedded in But critique gets really old after a while, it gets very empty and alienating. And if there's just this like black box in terms of, well, what do we do next? That it's, it's alienating and then hopeless, right? (laughs) So you need to be able to picture like, what do we want to build? And what's good? And there's a million variations of what that looks like, right? But Mm. there's some threads at the core um, that draw it all together, including like, decommodifying people and and trying to protect one another and and relate in these very important kind of um, long-term human ways right that have nothing to do with what your job is or how you make money and all those things right and and I think connecting um, what you can do to that future and being able to actually visualize it is so powerful for people otherwise they're just like I'm jumping into the abyss and what is there (laughs) right yeah I know what I know (laughs) right so even if it's degrading my life and the earth like I know it so it's safe and I'm gonna stay here and not jump so you got to give them like a concrete beautiful world to jump into
0: (laughs) oh that's so well said and also kind of not to like make it but whatever it's it is cool to have Some people's, you know, whether it's your natal chart, your astrology, or your human design, to kind of be like, oh, I am really good at this. I am supposed to communicate in this Mm -hmm. way, or live in this way, or work in this way. I think that's so helpful for figuring out like where do I put my, what is my north star? Or like, you know, even our north nodes can share so much about like where we're supposed to be starting to move ourselves and where we're going. So it all. I like that concept of just like. Your own individual assets, which only happens when you yourself take that time to like really deep dive into your own self. And mm-hmm. we're so busy at, at deflecting at maybe attention to ourselves or complimenting ourselves or even respect of self that we don't even allow ourselves to like open up the gifts of what we can give, you know?
1: Right. Right. Or we don't think about, especially for folks who have gifts that aren't like marketable right or don't oh, make a ton of money yes. or whatever we tend to minimize those so much if they can't become like a side hustle now especially and it's like no these are beautiful these are beautiful parts of you and they are so valuable even if they're not seen as they're not like you're not making a ton of money in this in this particular uh, way of looking at the world right mm-hmm. so i i just i get what i'm getting at is i think students are kind of socialized or or taught we're all taught to like think about what we have to offer in that kind of market economy or money economy. And we're so much more, right.
0: It's- I'm so glad you said that because it's so true. It's like, if it's not, if it's not, I don't, yeah. If it's not something that is now a business or something that is able to be put into a very defined, I am now a hustler, my own small business, right. glamorized in whatever way that is, it's mm-hmm. no longer a contribution. And then people don't even start to move towards it. Right. They don't see it fit into the boxes that we've, and it's so beautiful when people do have, you know, this like desire to work for themselves, but it has become its own monster in in and of
1: itself. Right. Right. And I think that there are so many connections between, or like similar, maybe personality types that are drawn towards academics as are drawn towards entrepreneurship right there's a lot of like intellectual entrepreneurship going on in academia and it's it's kind of the same drive of well the work is never done you could keep going right so it's very you have to be really disciplined I think to to not to not do that and to not more, more importantly not to model that from the for the people that that I might be mentoring or advising or whatever right like This is not, that's, that's not good for anyone. And we can, it's taken me a while to get to that point too, where I can say it's okay to, to rest and um, learning from like the nap ministry and other folks that are doing this good work in a very, like in a, in a much more in-depth way. Right. It's been, I've just grown so much from kind of thinking about that and not having our worth attached to our productivity. Mm. Right. However, we measure that.
0: What is the nap
1: ministry? So the nap, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of butcher this and not give you, I, I should even look this up, but on Instagram, it's called the nap ministry. There's a whole book around, um, around it that I am going to look this up right now. So that I like actually-
0: sleeping nap. Instead, I was thinking in stands for something, but like taking a nap
1: nap. Yeah. Like the, like it's about, it. it <laughs> it's about rest primarily mm-hmm. from the perspective of women of color, right. Pr- primarily black women who have always been in this position of having to labor for others and give their labor in a way that's not at all valued is incredibly undervalued, but entire systems have been built upon that, right? And just the lack of rest for generations of women of color in a variety of cultural settings, right? Um, So I'm not trying to like, you know, it gets, it gets a little complicated there, but, but that idea of rest as kind of revolution and not constantly needing to like be productive and work. And for some groups of folks, like the folks who have originated these ideas, right. It comes from a place of that, like historical oppression in all of these different ways. Right. And having your body be just like this, um, source of labor for, for, uh, you know, for, different systems that were going on from being like raising families, kids to doing actual like plantation labor right? when we go back and historically right. chattel slavery and stuff like that right so mm. um, but I think what we can all learn being kind of <laughs> members of this community that are trying like feeling like capitalism and these systems are so daunting and we can lift ourselves out of that right but it's giving your permission yourself permission as an individual first to like not constantly be working yes <laughs> and it's yes. a powerful it's a powerful it's so I know this stuff intellectually right and I still like am working more than I should mm. <laughs> so it's a mm-hmm. it's an ongoing I think it's kind of an ongoing process um but the book that it's based on is rest is resistance oh um, yeah yes 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 okay yeah and so it's that. yeah it's really it's really excellent um mm. excellent it, stuff but I'm glad but you not mentioned it. Me, so I don't want to like you know, claim that no, no, idea or anything. I'm glad like you
0: mentioned it. No, I think people are aware of it. Yeah, I think this is great. I think what I'm curious about for you is how what are some of those moments that you have had that are like I don't know, kind of like awakenings of where the world is in reality without being too doom and gloom. Mm. Have there been certain moments or even situations that you've come across that were like, "Oh, this is why I am doing this work." And this is affirming even more so the importance of us communicating this to the world, including the books that you're writing and like anything that you can think of, whether it's the uranium mining or just even just overall concepts that might be helpful to kind of really <laughs> showcase kind of, yeah, the truth of where we're at and mm-hmm. and what is happening at uh, from your perspective. I would love to hear.
1: Yeah so I think I think the, the like the area of environmental justice is what really got me. Sociology is really cool but within sociology there's so many different things to study, right? Um you're basically speaking an aspect of society and studying it. So the options are endless but I really resonated with environmental sociology which is silly but it's it for so for so long in sociology which started around the industrial revolution it's a very colonial science right to establish itself as a science sociologists were like really trying to ignore and it was like not cool to analyze anything to do with the biophysical environment or the world in which we're embedded we were supposed to just pretend like our social worlds go on regardless of <laughs> of like the context in which we're embedded, right? Which is just, I get it for the purposes of like 1800s, like trying to establish yourself as dip- different from physics, but um, it was a little, it's a little odd. And by the late seventies, early eighties, with all of the, think about the 1960s and 70s, right? And all the environmental movements, social activism that was going on. But also we saw the planet earth for the first time, right? From, mm-hmm. And there were things like the Santa Barbara oil spill and the Cuyahoga river starting on fire and, and Love Canal, right? These instances where people were dealing with huge amounts of contamination from all this unregulated industry. And it kind of coalesced into... Academically, for me, right, environmental sociology, but more import- importantly, out of all of it came this environmental justice movement, which has been going on for a very long time. And if you look at Indigenous scholars like Dina Julia Whitaker or um, Kyle White or um, other folks, right, they, they talk about how Indigenous environmental justice really goes back five, 600 plus years to those original. Instances of settler colonialism where people were forcibly ripped from mm. their themselves, right? From the land that they that is part of themselves and their ancestral heritage. And um environmental justice really coalesces around some of those things. And that is what has continued to um, invite me in and, and make me feel like I'm contributing to all these different movements that are going on at multiple scales, right? So If you don't, if it would be helpful, I can describe what environmental justice is a little bit like the strands of it. I don't want to ramble, but
0: no, you're not rambling at all. I mean, I just have so many follow-up questions, so I'll just take
1: notes. You keep going. And <laughs> I will try not to turn this into a college class. <laughs> no, I like um, it. Take me back. <laughs> I, I just taught environmental justice to my grad students this semester, so I will try not to go down that. I'm ar- I'm already in that mindset. But um, <laughs> so environmental justice, I think everyone's like, or a lot of people are f- familiar with the term. And in in terms of climate stuff, right? We talk about it like climate justice, but environmental justice is is. few different threads of ideas and one of the big ones is distributive injustice right so when we look at how we organize ourselves socially and ecologically and economically where how do we distribute the good stuff and the bad stuff in our society right so we kind of focus on when we think of environmental justice it's kind of the bad stuff within distributive justice right so where are those toxics and pollutants and risks and hazards mostly from systems of extraction and industry, right? So we have hundreds of studies now in sociology that show that communities of color, particularly indigenous or native communities, black communities, Latin communities, um, uh, but but communities of color and in the US, it usually aligns quite a bit with low income communities as well because of histories that have policy measures that have really connected race and class, so close in in our nation and other spaces but we have hundreds of studies right showing that those hazards those bad things distributive injustices right they tend to concentrate in spaces where people have less right where there are lower incomes and in, in communities of color and this isn't by accident right this has to do with histories of racial residential segregation and redlining um where those industrial noxious undesirable land uses are put near people who have the least power and who are marginalized the most very intentionally in our, in our society and in others, right? But it's also like about access to the good stuff. So where is the clean air and the clean water and the public transportation and the affordable housing and all of that stuff, right? The environmental goods. And that's the other side of the coin is that usually when you're overexposed to the bad stuff, you're underexposed or have less access to the good stuff, right? So you might live in a neighborhood that has very few trees. You might live in an area where you very rarely get to access fresh food as you're working with, right? Even though you might even be working in agriculture, you're not able to access those things, right? Um, So that's what we think about a lot with environmental justice or injustice, and that's really important, right? But it doesn't tell us why things got that way or how things got that way, right? And so Another really important layer here is called like procedural justice or procedural equity. And it's just what it sounds like, right? It's all about process. So it's what sort of policies created those situations of inequitable access or inequitable exposure to really hazardous stuff. And it has a lot to do with who's at the table to make decisions and not just sit at the table, but who's constructing the table, right? And who wants to sit at it or not? Because the conversations that are being had are very particular based on who's initiating things, right? And it's all about meaningful participation. So are you going to like a public meeting and you can talk for three minutes and then you're cut off? Or are you able to like help Have the conversations fifty steps earlier, where we're talking about what the world looks like and what decisions we're making, and and those sorts of things, right?
0: And were you invited to the public meeting, and you know, didn't even know it existed, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I work a lot with in in the area of like information access too, right? Because you can't really make decisions if you if you aren't able to like understand what we know about a given hazard, right, or risk, for example. But often that information is super specialized, it's not accessible, it's not translated for folks who don't have like a degree in toxicology or something, right? Or you have to have enough time to like spend a second job's worth of time essentially like accessing that information and to make a decision so that your kids don't get sick because you're living near something hazardous, right? So I, I think maybe an example would be helpful. I Like I said, I work a lot in oil and gas communities, right? So with folks who here in Colorado could have a well pad a 1,000 feet from the side of their house, right? So it could be like the side of your house, a 1,000 feet away is the hole in the ground where we're drilling for oil or gas, right? And that's seen as being um, really kind of... A, we talk in Colorado, or Colorado talks about itself as being at the forefront of regulation of oil and gas, right? Like we're doing such an awesome job. And that's the state of things here in Colorado. After community groups pushing and pushing and pushing, it used to be like 500 feet, right? In all of this, there's the distributive injustice of who is exposed to those kinds of hazards, right? There's risks from production, there's risks from pipelines. Drilling is really disruptive to people. I've done a lot of work on the chronic mental health and stress impacts that can come from having no power, like no power in a political system, but then also um, being really uncertain about what happens to your health, to your kid's health when you're living amidst all of that industrial activity and have zero control over it, right? So not only do you have the distributive injustice of I'm living really close to this industrial activity, my child might be getting sick from it. We have a lot of evidence now of um, childhood leukemias and other problems, birth defects, miscarriages being related to living within a half mile or a mile of active drilling, right? For example, Uh that's a huge distributive injustice. The procedural injustice is that in places like Colorado, for example, folks have not had a seat at the table. They've been told, in fact, by the state here in Colorado, you can't make those choices as a local community, right? So they don't have access to useful information, and they're also cut out of Participating meaningfully in a process that really matters for for our environment, but also for their their own families and their well being, right? So I, I hope that kind of illustrates like environmental justice and all of the avenues. Though it's 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 like we can look at all the injustice, but then what we also can look at is all of the mobilization and passion around not having that, right, and building better systems. And it's not, for many of these groups, it's not about nimbyism, right, or not in my backyard, get that away from me. It's about wanting to build better worlds for their children, right? Intergenerational justice is a huge part of this, honoring ancestors and, and trying to hand a world that's livable and beautiful to our children and our children's children, etc. cetera, even if you don't have kids, right, our children in a very general collective sense, Um, And also recognizing folks and more than humans who have not had a seat at the table, right? Recognizing that we are not the only beings on this planet. We are not the only living beings for sure. And we are surrounded by like beautiful living systems, right? That we tend to um, in the English language turn into these like inert objects, right? We call them it and and, and that sort of thing. And, And that is one of the first problems, right? In terms of how we conceptualize. So environmental justice is also all about at the deeper levels, like recognizing the, the rights of nature in a very, that's a very narrow way to talk about it, right? But the rights of nature and how to restore systems and right relationships so that we're not continuing to try down this path that that seems to not be very, very healthy for for most all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot about recognition and restorative uh, restoration of place. Right. So there's some really cool remediation stuff going on, that I'm starting to focus on with like fungi and mycelial systems um, and hemp. And like, I I am sure you're very aware Mm. of all, it's just so freaking cool to look at all of how intelligent Mm. all these beings are. Right. And Mm -hmm. in, in a way it's like, we just need to like human beings have such a, we could play such a beautiful role in like being a conduit for that and like yeah Robin Wall Kimmerer I I, like the the book Braiding Sweetgrass is he made a huge impact on me and I teach that book and I think it's just it really made me remember that people are supposed to be here to like sing to the sing for the planet and sing to we're we're here to do such beautiful things Mm -hmm. right and environmental justice really kind of hooks me in because it reminds you on a daily basis of how lovely our relationships with self other and all the other beings, right? All of the more than humans could be. If we would just try to look at what is going on in the system, we're embedded, that's kind of breaking that down, right? Mm. And do everything we can to stop that and pivot in the other direction, in the mm. other million directions that we could go. <laughs> so true
0: what you said. I love that book. She did such a brain. Sweetgrass so um, is so good. It is so good. Yeah. Even even chapter by chapter, I've, I've had a few people talk about how it was hard for them to read. And I was like, that's so Mm. interesting, which, which, you know, when it's resonating for people and one of those books that, you know, it's on your shelf and then you pick it up when you're ready, but even just a chapter at a time, just to Mm -hmm. start to understand relationship with other that's not human is so profound. And just that awakening that's, I feel like that's the, the revolution more than any other place because we're so stuck in logic and rules and policy that the the most power we can give and this is where you and i first initially bonded i believe is like it comes from this internal awakening of seeing the world alive for the first time and really having that powerful sense of oh (laughs) like this this has to die in order for this to exist so what does this mean over time collectively of course This is where we start to bring life back into these places that have been so overlooked or just, we're just so disconnected from, I, you know, it's like really profound when we get into our bubbles and we just stop seeing the world as it is. It's, it's just the awakening of like, how do we get the world to see, to see the things that we want them to see, which is how alive and how powerful and how profound nature is. And I I think possibly because our, you know, obviously you've talked about this, you just addressed this, but even your chapter, and I don't know if this is maybe a recap of the chapter would be helpful, or even kind of diving into this kind of the final negative component, maybe of this, (laughs) which is not human, human beings, not human buying, not humans buying. And, and how, I don't know. It's almost like when I was, in the van and just like very disconnected from the world in a way that was really profound, but then like reentering into society was a kind of a whole experiment in and of itself where I just got to see things for what they were and obviously seeing my own participation in it. And then we look at holiday season and we look at just in general, neoliberalism kind of as a whole, which you explained so well in your book, I felt like I finally understood it.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That was the goal, right? Because I could not assign anything that wasn't like huge, where I could be like, this is what it's about. So we were like, we are writing this chapter, even though we've got a little bit of pushback. (laughs) I loved it. You need to be able to, people need to know what this is, right? Mm We like, this is all we do. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm glad it was accessible.
0: No, of course it was accessible. Yeah. So like, where, where did we go? you know, just thinking of let's say oil and gas, right. We know even that example you gave, like, how do we engage in that conversation? Right. These people, it's like Aaron Brockovich happening everywhere, right? This is everywhere. So it's like, okay, this is happening. What is my role in it? And yet also I'm still driving a van that goes off gas, you know? And then we, we talk about lithium and like, okay, go eco-friendly, but lithium mining and extraction is so also like it, when people talk about, I mean, there's just, there's such a disconnect. It's, it's, so where do we go from here and how do we engage in this? Like we want to be humans, yet we also still aren't quite ready to live on the farm. Maybe we will in a couple of years where we're like completely isolated. How do we navigate that conversation? And what comes up when we talk about that in between of existing yet still being less impactful for the, the detriment that we've obviously been a part of?
1: Right. Oh, goodness. This is such a good question, Emily. It's so important, too, because I think that this might be, even for folks who feel like they are, like, fully engaged and ready to be part of something collective, right? I think this is the big stumbling block, right? Is this feeling of complicity, right? This feeling that, well, I can't really demand transformative change or true systems change because, like you said, right, I drive a vehicle that uses gasoline or I wear clothing that, like, is, is synthetic, right? And has some petroleum in it, or I use cosmetics or any number of things, right? Um, and this is a really, th- there's two ways that I wanna take this because I think this is really important. The first way is, is to talk about um, just very bluntly, right? Like we are constrained to b- behave those ways because we're embedded in systems where we're dependent upon those technologies, right? So for example, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. I unfortunately cannot take a train down to Denver, right? There is no public transportation that is connecting despite a lot of public push for this sort of thing for decades, right? And that's the case in many spaces within the U.S., right? Um, So I couldn't make the decision to be car free, for example, if I live in an area of this city that isn't well connected via public transit, and of course is here in Fort Collins, even, right, a very privileged community with a lot of public transportation, bike paths, etc. There are areas of our community that are totally disconnected that are are also racially and ethnically minoritized, right? And they're the areas that suffer from some of the most persistent poverty. So you see those patterns, right, where you, are, you can be complicit in consuming things that you might not want to consume because that is the system in which we're all deeply embedded, the pro and where we where we have to get to, and what I encourage folks to do as I teach them or talk to them is we we own that complicity. Like, yes, I am part of this system. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't and don't have the right to envision or the responsibility, really, right? And this this goes back to that thinking in terms of rights, but really we have to start thinking in terms of responsibilities. Um, I still have the responsibility to demand something that I know is better and not only demand it like to some like market in the sky or whatever, but actually like work towards doing that in any little way I can. So I still drive a car, right? But I also bike to work and bike around as much as I possibly can. And I luckily live in a community and a part of that community where I can do that. So you do the little things that let you feel like you're contributing towards that better system you want to build without letting yourself feel like you can't make those transformative Um, you can't have those transformative visions, right? Because you participate in a system that, that isn't all about them. Um, And and I think this is really important because even in the oil and gas work I do, the folks I interview a lot are, are community organizers, right? They may have been involved in community groups. They are really passionate about protecting their, their children and their community, but they will stop short of saying no more fossil fuels or, no more oil and gas drilling because of that sense of complicity because they, and and this is what the industry really plays on. And this is the second thread that I, I want to follow through on um, because, uh, it, and there's an excellent frontline documentary called the power of big oil that I would highly recommend. It's, it's a commitment. It's three parts. It's big, <laughs> but it, what it gets across, right. Is that we have a very well-documented sense of how, Big oil firms and other fossil fuel companies, coal is also part of this, right, have gone from, they've known a big oil, in particular Exxon, has known a lot about climate change, global warming, since at least the 70s, probably earlier than that, right? And they went out of their way at first in the 70s, right, to like have... Higher scientists who are looking at renewable energy really to try to understand like whoa we're going in this direction this is really scary we probably need to figure out how to diversify as a company and do things other than oil and then the the oil embargoes happened and that he, you know I I wasn't alive at the time but of course like there's we've we've heard about the history of the people standing in line for gas and things like that during the late 70s when OPEC came on the scene and and after that Exxon just kind of closed shop on all of that as well as other oil companies. And what they ended up doing for decades was stifling their own science that they had found and then creating um, contrary climate science or funding it, I should say, so that there was this illusion by about the late 90s, mid 2000s in places like the U.S. that, well, maybe climate crisis isn't happening, maybe it's not driven by human causes, um, so that climate denialism, right? And we have now, all, sociologists have done it and others have done a really good job of looking at how was that funded? How did we get from those oil and gas companies to this culture of climate denialism that really took over, right? It took over our political system, it stymied any sort of policy moves towards actually reducing emissions and doing other things that were so important for climate. And if we would have done this in the 90s, like during the Kyoto Protocol, the amount of emissions cutting and things like that that would have had to happen would have been so much smaller than what we deal with now. Every year that we let go past, things just get more and more ramped up for reasons I can talk about if we want to go down that road. But... Big oil really played that out for as long as they could, right? They kept this, they kept funding scientists here and there in these well-positioned places, helped create curriculum for really underfunded school. You know, like public education is really underfunded. Teachers have to often create their own curriculum, very aware of that, and through different foundations, like send climate curriculum to science teachers, right? So they're teaching, like, well, there's a debate, and you create this whole culture in a place like the US of creating this idea that there's a debate over the science when in fact there's not. And that delayed things for 25 years, 30 years, right? We don't have 30 years. No. And then (laughs) now what they've done coming back to my point is that they've like, they've kind of realized since about probably 2010s. Oh, we can't really like climate change is undeniable, right? It's been undeniable for a while, but with all of the intensified heat waves and storms and wildfires there are fewer and fewer people that haven't been affected by some aspect of climate change now. So climate denialism, it still hangs on in some spaces. And during the most recent COP or at the Conference of Parties hosted in UAE by an oil baron, essentially, like they're still using that language. Of, well, we don't really know. And the science isn't that good. But big oil and coal have really pivoted towards the hopelessness tack now. It's, it's not well it's not happening and we're going to deny this now it's well it's very much is happening we never said it wasn't happening but mm-hmm. you are all the reason why this is happening right That's your true. demand and your consumption and those sorts of things are what are driving what we're producing and so this is your fault right bp was british petroleum was a key player in developing the carbon footprint tool that individualizes everything. You take that little carbon footprint and say, well, how many earths does it take to support my lifestyle? If you're an American, because we're embedded in all these industrial wasteful systems without even knowing it really, it takes at least three earths, right? Just at minimum. Some of my students do this and it's like 15, right? (laughs) Because we are embedded in these systems that we're disconnected from and we don't know what we're consuming, right? Mm -hmm. So BP focuses all on the individual. Like you all are driving this, you're complicit in this, you should feel guilty. And really hoping that that sense of guilt and shame, which is like the lowest level at which we could exist, right? Like that that's going to keep people from, Having feeling like they have any right or responsibility to demand better. And and that's why it gets to me so much now, I think, because we're at such a critical juncture. And for some folks, this is a lot of folks, right? This is really working. Like it's, it's, you're embedded in the system. You are complicit in the system. Um, Even if you are like living in an intentional community off grid you are still using solar panels right and you bring up uh, rare earth minerals and and lithium and things like that that need that are components of even those systems right wow. so so i think it's really important to keep to keep in mind like there is a lot at stake and even though i might be my daily actions might implicate me in the systems that exist that are extractive and not so just that doesn't mean that i can't and shouldn't and have a responsibility to actually work towards something that is so much better and different and not based on extractivism to the extent that this is right so mm-hmm. if anything it's not it's not in my mind right it's not how your complicity shouldn't keep you from acting it makes you responsible to act more than mm-hmm. anything else right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so I'm sorry for the long the long kind of no don't be go around there but I think it's really important to understand that we're not all feeling that way just because as individuals like we come to that place, We're feeling that way because we're hearing those messages a lot by the very entities that caused the problem, have not claimed responsibility for it, and then try to blame the folks that are, and we're complicit in this. We are consuming these things, but to make it seem like it's one-sided and it's all demand side is um, just disingenuous, right?
0: You said it so well, the guilt and shame, because it's like, bad, bad religion all over again. Right. Like there's no greater way than just to like, oh, it's your fault. Be small and, and hump your shoulders and just like, uh, yeah. Like it's like, this is so not how we're supposed to live. It's so opposite of our truest best self. Like, oh my goodness. Okay. So I have, so one question, what is one of your most positive? Um, maybe it's kind of a repair relationship that's beginning, especially with indigenous and knowing we have so far away, so far to go when it comes to actually having those bridges or even just that connection coming back. Like it's, we know this, but like, just to say it, it's like, it's, it's so, Mind blowing that the reason that we're at the place we're at is because we strip that relationship, right? So to for us to acknowledge it, of course, and then also to repair and to to not just brush it aside, I think is one of the biggest conversations that we're having. So, like whether it's in relationship repair or whether it's in remediation, if that's possible. Um, yeah. What's one of the, one specific story through hemp or mycelium we kind of touched on it. What is something that's really making your own heart expand in, in excitement of some of the the positive wins that are happening?
1: Oh, there's so much. That's a mm-hmm. perfect question. Thank you. Uh, I think that um, I think one thing that really makes my heart sing is, is learning. I've learned to see scale, right? Like as a social scientist, you start to study Small scale, medium scale, and large scale, right? And I think sometimes we get focused at the individual, like very small scale ourselves, right? Or the very large scale, like the capitalist system. And, and so that's where we start to feel really ineffective and lonely, right? Because it's like, well, how can I, little me, possibly affect this big system? So start in terms of like in general, starting to think about scaling up, right? And how to that there are all these little, um, places to latch on to get you from you know from your individual to to a little group that's working on this and then that group can become part of a coalition right and that coalition can maybe make impacts in terms of like policies over oil and gas in your state for example or something like that right so one thing that i've seen that's hopeful across the board are just the ways in which if we if we organize and then grow organize and grow it you can become part of something that's so much bigger than you just by being part of something that's one scale up, right, from, from an individual or something like that. I think that's incredibly powerful. I also, what I've when I was doing these interviews and Megan and I were doing these interviews, I think we were very intentional about the cases that we selected so that they were representative and, and all of that. But what we ended up seeing was that the cases that we landed on are 90% driven by people who identify as women and so many of the cases that we're looking at are driven by native nations or indigenous folks right and there was a point at which we were like what are we doing as two white women we are telling these stories that i don't want to feel like we're appropriating these stories and we're telling other people's stories right but of course people told us what they that told us their stories understanding that that they could use our platform whatever it's worth right and and so in that way i i felt emboldened after a while to tell the stories we were given permission to share right and I think in the thread that I found in all of those was just there's so much love that people have Mm -hmm. for for their neighbors and their communities and the land that they that they live with and and once that that coming back to those relationships is kind of centered we're so socialized and we learn so much how to think of people instrumentally right and think of others instrumentally like well what does my connection to them get me we start in a capitalist system to think of everything kind of as a commodity including our relationships um and i think that one of the most inspiring things i've seen across these cases is the tendency to kind of question that orientation and then get back into right relationship with ourselves and each other through through having a sense of reciprocity whatever that is right like have knowing and understanding that this is not, you don't have a right to access these things. This is not, but in a way being given this gift of life is it makes you beautifully responsible, right? And once you're able to kind of connect with that, um, that sense of responsibility and know where to channel your energy, I think that's where people feel where I've seen people feel really empowered to build something a little bit different. Right. I do think you brought up remediation and that's an area that I'm just starting to study. I think that from a social science perspective, right? Um, Because fungi and mycelial structures in general, um, and I know a little bit less about hemp, but doing the interview with Winona LaDuke really had me learn a lot about hemp. Um, We have so, there are so many other intelligent beings in this world that I think part of it has been too, just realizing like, it doesn't have to all be engineered by human beings, right? And, and if it is, like the first step to learning how to do that is to listen. It's not to insert yourself or your expertise, but it's just to listen and watch the world around you. And from that, we can learn so much, right? There There is a, a kind of fungi that is, I don't know much, uh, very much about it, but I'm just learning. There's a kind of fungi that is essentially like colonizing one of the Chernobyl nuclear reactors, right? And I mean, it's, it's this environment that is so risky and dangerous. And we know we like open Pandora's box with nuclear stuff in the, in the forties and have no idea how to remediate anything really. Like I work at, <laughs> sure. if you've heard of the Rocky flat site, just North of Denver, they made plutonium triggers for nuclear yes, with organs. the horse
0: where the is. Yes. That, yes. Oh There's my gosh. I was whole, just reading oh, about that. I drove by the horse and I
1: was like, what was is haunting? Yeah, yeah. And I
0: had to stop and I started reading and I'm like, oh My God. And then they're building a whole community right there.
1: Yes. So I do a lot of work with, with that area because it's incredible. Like we, plutonium is a human made nuclear monster, right? It's a, it's a, it's a human made nuclear substance that helps that you make triggers for nuclear weapons out of. We, it has a half-life of 26,000 years, meaning that it only, ha- only half of it disintegrates in 26,000 years. If we talk about something like uranium, it has half-lives of billions of years. And we started meddling around in this stuff, right? And th- at the height of hubris, I would say, thought that we could somehow control these things or understand how to remediate them. And the lesson learned has been that we don't. And I've been involved in these workshops with like DOE and stuff too, where it's like, how do we think about communicating to people in a thousand or 10,000 years, just about the risk of what we've left buried in the ground, right? And that Rocky Flat site in particular, um, you know, it was out there operating for decades. People had no idea what it was because of national security. You couldn't talk about it. If you worked there, you couldn't talk to each other. Families living around there thought that it was like a dish soap. Or like a scrubbing bubbles kind of facility, right? Meanwhile, it's creating some of the most hazardous nuclear material we know, and 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 now instead of cleaning up the site, well, a big chunk of it, it they just like left it untouched because they were trying to cut corners and not. It's a whole. It, it's a whole like it could be its own podcast, right? Um. Point being, nuclear, the kind of industrial contamination we've created, chemical and otherwise, is. It, it's all a little um, overwhelming when you really get into it, because we don't know a lot toxicologically about how things interact in our environment, interact in our bodies. But when you talk about nuclear, there's another level there in terms of time, and in terms of just how impactful those substances can be to our bodies, right? And to, when we think about intergenerational justice, especially, like, folks who had nothing to do with any of these technologies will be impacted by this. And how do we communicate all of that? But to go back to the remediation thing, right? It's it's so inspiring to me and just so hopeful. These are the little nuggets that I have to look for. Um, that in this reactor that you would think would be like the heart of risk and hazard, these mycelium have just been, or these fungi have been like, okay, we figured out how to like start to colonize and break down this the substance that human beings have no idea how to do anything around and we just kind of like cordon it off and stay away right and and seeing that and seeing how hemp can remediate soil what even when it's been just victimized by by all of the industrial agricultural processes, right? Like Winona's story about like she's in the middle of this big potato farm that is just like spraying pesticides and they're slowly trying to take back the land, right? And 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 are able to see the the good work that hemp can do in terms of um just remediating that spot, right? So those are the kinds of stories that that I hear. It's not so much like one particular case or whatever. Um, But it's, you know, it's the spirit of let's listen to the world around us. It has so much wisdom and let's try to facilitate what she's doing (laughs) as best we can. Right. Um, And that means learning from folks who have a history uh, of listening and learning and not dominating over and not thinking of themselves as outside of nature, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And and really being very humble in, in those directions. And I also think Megan and I highlight in our book, right, how important it is to not, and this goes back to the discussion of lithium extraction and things like that, just because renewables have some problems with them that doesn't mean that we can't move in that direction. That's better than extracting fossil fuels, right? Nothing that human beings create is going to be perfect, right? And we are like on this, especially sociologists sometimes are, we critique so much, we're trained to critique so much that we can't just go in the direction of the good. It has to be perfect. And I'm so tired of that. (laughs) Like Mm. we've got got to just go in the direction of the good. And Mm. that's what's really inspired me is across these cases in my students, when I see how engaged they can get, they're just trying to go towards the thing that brings them joy that they love and that is in the right direction. Meaning like it's not intentionally extractive or hurting others. And they're trying to center equity and and justice as much as possible. Is it going to be complete? No, we are, we are human beings. Right. And that's the point, (laughs) but we can get as we can be wiser. Right. And we can go in a better direction. I think Um, that was really long
0: (laughs) as it should be. I mean, this is good. This is so good. I also just have to share this, that before even after you connected with me, that your husband was my first soccer coach ever. Not ever. My dad was probably my first soccer coach ever, but I love Matt. I cannot believe that's your husband. That was so fun that you were just like, Oh, by the way.
1: What kind of small it's going to be weird or creep you out or something? But it was like when I made that connection, I was like, holy smokes.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. Matt and Xander are my favorite soccer coaches of all times. Uh, I just love it so much. You sent me a picture. I had a moment.
1: It was so good. That's, I love I love that. And it's um, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll not ramble about that, but it's, I think it's a really cool connection that just made me feel like I was a brave enough to kind of reach out to you because I was like, okay, she might remember me from this and I won't be one of those weirdos. That's just like, Hey, listen, to what I have to say. okay. Well,
0: just really quick, Stephanie, you're a manifester. There can be no hesitation of what yes. you, you go inform the world about. Okay.
1: I'm learning to wrap this,
0: to wrap this up. You're the manifester to inform the world of what you see the future being how you see the world unfolding in your lifetime and then past it um what would you like to see how do you like how would you like to envision the world or how would you like us to also join you in that in that process what can we look forward to and yeah just inform us and therefore it will become <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh if only i love that um so i just want to help build a world that makes everyone feel loved and happy and held, right? Um, And that sounds really corny, but at the core of it, right, is the fact that we're all working, and you mentioned neoliberalism before. So very briefly, I just wanna say like, the last 40 years, we have been living in a system, a variety of capitalism in places like the US that is just soul sucking, right? It like centers money and private property uh, thinking of land as property too, above everything else, right? Our happiness, our health, all the rest of it. I just want to help build a world where health and happiness and well-being are centered and not counter to the dominant system in place, right? And I really think after learning from all of these folks that have told us their stories for the book and all the work that I do in community with with folks who are dealing with injustices, right, um, is that it really starts with trying to, it it really starts with trying to remediate or restore the relationships and the people right around you, right? Um, And what I would really love to see, I think about, um, you know, I was talking before about scale, but I think it's so interesting to think about how to scale down and decentralize a lot of the ways that we live so that we can be more connected to the land and the people right in our vicinity, right? So I think about an intentional, some intentional communities are kind of really interesting blueprints for this, right? How do you actually learn how to grow food, cultivate food, have access to water? How do you, how do we relearn a lot of the skills that we've lost um, as Western industrialized individuals is who I'm talking about. Not every human being has lost these, of course, thank goodness we have wisdom holders and keepers who are remembering these things for us. But but I want to help facilitate just that kind of connection at a scale that's more like a big neighborhood or a community. And the reason, and then scale those up to, I mean, it's not so different from how Native nations and Native groups would organize themselves, especially if we look at like the some different confederacies and things like that, and what we call North America now, you have these decentralized communities that are smaller, and you can scale up to these larger scale, like regional and even beyond that, right? Because Our desire, I think, is to connect as human beings, and we will connect at at multiple scales. But the reason why we need that is because in sociology, we talk about this thing called like metabolic rift. And all that means is that we have industrial westernized humans have a deep rift between us and the metabolism of the world, right? We really, we're, we don't have our hands in the soil. We are not going to bed when it gets dark and waking up when it's light. We are very, very disconnected because we're embedded in these industrial systems where we like flip a switch and a light comes on. And we have no sense where that power comes from, or we turn on a tap and water comes out, but we don't think about that water or where she comes from or any of the rest of it. Right. And so Creating a scale of life where we can be in community and and relearn those things, I think, could be incredibly healing for ourselves and our communities, but also um, really healing for these big systemic problems that we face, like, like climate crisis and things like that. I also am a huge advocate for doing everything we can to try to get away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible and um that is a really scary thing to say sometimes as as a as an intellectual or as a as a professor but I've especially because I do work in the area right it's so easy to get attacked as being biased or something like that but my mantra in my work is that you can be objective without being neutral and so I think what myself and a lot of other folks can do, we're experts in something, we know something, right? So we can still be very good scientists or, you know, good programmers or good whatever we do and be objective and rigorous within that, but we have to, we can't be neutral about the problems that we're seeing because you know how to fix a problem in your different, like your little area, right? Um, And so we have to advocate for the better world that we see around us, that we want to see around us, right? And I just want to get people to a point where they feel empowered to do that, hopeful enough to do that. And a lot of that is trying to strip away the false scarcity that comes in a system like neoliberal capitalism, where we feel like we're competing with each other. You know, we can make a lot of statements about human nature, that we're selfish, we're competitive, etc. But I really think human nature is nothing if not just adaptable and social, like that's what we are. And the competition or whatever that we may see all around us is because we're really just trying to adapt and thrive within this really strange system that that rewards that kind of behavior, right? Um, But that doesn't mean that that's human nature. It means that we can adapt to something very different. And we're seeing that all around us now, right? There's a lot of beautiful, good adaptation going on and moves towards social systems that are so much more loving and equitable and, um, can hold us and can hold our children and don't try to like break down the environment around us. So that's Mm -hmm. maybe kind of an abstract answer, but that's what I would, I, I I want to inspire everyone to build that, whatever that means, um, Mm -hmm. in their corner.
0: (laughs) So good. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.